Welcome to the Beyond Macros podcast, a show where we teach you how to get leaner and perform your best through nutrition, training, and the art of inner work. This week, our show is brought to you by us, Beyond Macros, a nutrition coaching company that helps you make a sustainable transformation through realistic habit changes rather than restrictive dieting. We care much more about what happens in the years after you work with us than we do about a transformation photo. But we have plenty of those too. Our group coaching program registration opens up again in a month. For a discounted early bird rate or to get on the waiting list, you should check out beyondmacros.com slash group. This week, I had the opportunity to speak with Rob Wolf, author of Wired to Eat, The Paleo Solution, and a podcast by the same name. Rob was one of the first CrossFit affiliate owners and the original subject matter expert on nutrition for CrossFit HQ. He's also an all-around wealth of knowledge who is one of the most respected people in the industry. After reading Rob's most recent book, Wired to Eat, I found the concept of his seven-day carb test absolutely fascinating. I've had over 50 clients run the test on themselves now with interesting results. Rob and I talked extensively about the rationale behind the method of carb testing suggested in the book, what effects people's individual carb tolerance has, when ketogenic diets are beneficial, and the future of nutrition based on the patterns he's been observing. This episode is packed full of goodness, so let's dive in. First, to give a little background, the seven-day carb test involves using a glucometer, which is that little diabetic finger prick tool that measures for blood sugar, to determine how your body processes specific carbohydrates. The protocol involves eating 50 grams of net carbs from a carb food you commonly consume, like RX bars or rice, and then measuring your blood sugar at the two-hour mark to see if your blood sugar has come back down below 115 nanograms per deciliter. Medical carb tolerance testing for diabetes has participants consume a 75-gram glucose solution and a test at the two-hour mark to see if blood sugar drops below 140 nanograms per deciliter. So I was curious where Rob got his numbers from. I tried to inform it based around the interwebs and in people writing about low-carb diets and whatnot. Um, this 150 grams of, of daily carbohydrate intake seemed to be where everybody from like Atkins to Barry Sears to Mark Sisson, like that seemed to be for a lot of people kind of this upper limit that they, you know, it's like if you stay at or around that, then people are typically uh, very uh, prone to being metabolically healthy. It's difficult to to overeat in general. It's difficult to overeat due to hyperpalatable foods. You know, it just kind of kind of limits the options. And so breakfast, lunch, dinner, 50 grams of whack, 150 grams. So, I mean, they, that was a little bit of what was informing it. And then also when you look at reasonable meal sizes, you know, like if you had a sandwich with two pieces of bread, it ends up being around like 45 to 50 grams of carbs, you know? And so these kind of reasonable meal portions seem to be, uh, uh, you know, floating right around that, that 50 gram mark. And then on the, the 115 uh, milligrams per deciliter on the blood sugar, that was honestly, a pretty good compromise where I looked for that information was looking at data on pre-Westernized cultures, both hunter-gatherers and agriculturalists, horticulturalists, uh, and the oral glucose tolerance tests that these people had done. And what was really fascinating in these groups is that in general, at one hour 
after doing a 100-gram oral glucose tolerance test, uh, that, that tended to be the, the norm. At one hour, the vast majority of these non-Westernized folks tended to not see blood glucose go much above about 105. And yeah, really remarkable. And, and, uh, and again, that's at one hour. We typically test at two hours, which provides twice as much time for, for glucose clearance. And so, you know, I kind of use that as a benchmark of, um, you know, metabolic health, but it's something that is forgotten so frequently in the, the high carb versus low carb, uh, battles is that people who are able to eat a lot of carbs, they have a blood glucose response and they have an insulin response that looks like what I have on a low carb intake, you know? And so um, when we start seeing these really big blood sugar deltas, either going very high and then dropping low, that's where we tend to see uh, the beginning of disease process. That's where we tend to see rebound hypoglycemia and a tendency to overeat. And so if we could find some way of, of staying within a reasonably tight boundary, then what, what we had found clinically, it, 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 I'm on the board of directors of a medical clinic here in Reno, Nevada, and we do a lot of lipidology work and work with first responders, police, military, fire. Uh, what we found is that for a given individual, if we could just kind of keep their blood sugars pretty normalized and avoid those really dramatic highs and lows, it became comparatively easy for these people to eat in a way uh, that they met their satiety, that they spontaneously reduced food intake if, if weight loss was a goal. And it became relatively easy for these folks to, to lose weight. So the, you know, the, the choice of 50 grams of effective carbohydrate had a couple of different influences, you know, both from uh, just kind of clinical observations that that, you know, three meals a day, 50 grams each meal tended to be kind of a, a safe boundary to work within for, for the vast majority of people. Clearly, some people do much better on, on much higher levels than that, but it, it was a, a good place to start. And then I actually relaxed the blood glucose response quite a bit for the book. And part of that was just that, uh, uh, you, you know, it, 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 almost giving people a little bit more latitude than what they probably should have if we're really trying to affect some change. But it, it also recognizing that uh, with a little bit more latitude up front, usually we can still get some favorable changes. And then over the course of time, we can get more nuanced and kind of dial this stuff in and make it more refined. This makes total sense to me. 150 grams of carbs per day, 50 grams per square meal. It's very realistic. But for my purposes, I feed a good deal of my athletes more than 150 grams of carbs and recommend some consume upwards of 100 grams of carbs per meal. So I've actually decided to revise my approach to this test and my higher carb people. I will now have the higher carb people consume a dose of carbs closer to what I am recommend they consume at a normal meal. There are also some other factors that I've found affect the results of carb testing, ranging from medication to shift work. Rob discussed some of the biggest issues he's seen in his clinical experience. That's maybe the easiest one to address is the, the shift worker, you know, police, military, fire, uh, medical professionals, uh, new parents. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you, it took me a while to kind of stitch this all together, but I, I, for years I would get basically the following email. Hey, I'm, I'm eating, you know, paleo. And because I was in the CrossFit scene at the time, typically people were kind of following zone ratios. So they're weighing and measuring their food. So I'm, you know, I'm zoned out, I'm paleo, but I just can't seem to lose any weight. And, uh, you know, I would ask them a few 
questions. And, and typically the main questions were, are you police, military or fire? And for about 90% of the respondents, they're like, yeah, I'm in that. And then if they said, no, I'm not any of that. And I'm like, okay, when did the baby arrive? And then the remaining like 10%, that was that those were the folks And that, that shift work or the disordered sleep, it only takes a, a one or two nights of short or disordered sleep to make someone as transiently insulin resistant as a type two diabetic. Now we can reverse that with exercise. We can reverse that with normal sleep, but that, that stress response of short sleep or disordered circadian rhythm, like, you know, the, the individual that's going to bed at, at uh, you know, 8am sleeping through the day, getting up and, and uh, doing their, their work during the night. Um, that individual no matter what else we do, is always behind the metabolic eight ball. And these are the folks that we have to use something like a, a smart, low-carb, possibly even a ketogenic diet. Uh, we need to tackle every element of their sleep hygiene to make the sleep that they do get as good as we can possibly manifest. We need to use things like phosphatidylserine, possibly vitamin C, uh, some of these adaptogens uh, to help mitigate, you know, HBTA axis dysregulation and, and uh, elevated cortisol during their, their sleep period. So honestly, out of any of this stuff, if we have someone that is uh, shift work, you know, in their background, it's a guarantee that they're going to be metabolically broken. Or if they're not, they're kind of genetically exceptional and or quite young. Beyond sleep disturbances, everyone's favorite topic, the gut microbiome, can also be a problem. Because of the many downfalls with just looking at the numbers, it's important to also look at subjective issues. I'd ask folks to do both the objective measurement of tracking the blood glucose response, but then also the um, subjective element of how do you feel between those meals? Like, do you uh, get hangry? Do you get hungry and angry between meals? Do you experience a blood sugar crash after the banana? You know, your blood sugar goes up and then when it when it drops back down, do you feel hungry or shaky or irritable um, with those kind of clinical manifestations? Then we can make a little bit more informed of a, a decision around this. I was also curious about the effect cooking starches might have on the results of the tests. As some of you may have heard, Cooking and then cooling starches like potato can create resistant starch, which is supposed to decrease the blood sugar effect of the food and feed the good gut bacteria. Rob just didn't see that changing things. If you had a problem with uh, warm white rice, then you had a problem with cold white rice. Like it really wasn't a massive difference there. Even though resistant starch may not have affected the results, apparently cooking starches longer, like low and slow beans, can increase the blood sugar response. The big difference is that I did see, like if somebody really cooks the heck out of something, like if they cook something for a long, long time, like if they're doing lentils and they cook them all day in a slow cooker, uh, they tended to um, produce a higher glycemic response. And this is pretty consistent with um, what we've seen in the literature where the, you know, the duration of cooking method, uh, basically the, the longer those starch granules are, are broken down, then the easier it is for it to digest. As with any testing, though, it's important to remember one number doesn't tell the whole story. The equipment has an error rate, and some people can have what looks like a favorable blood sugar response, yet still experience signs and symptoms of issues. One of the challenges around that, though, is a, a, a reality that 
even the better uh, blood glucometers, they may have an error rate of like five to 10%. And so if it's on that, or, or some of them are apparently even as high as 15%. So if your true value is 100 nanograms per deciliter, and we've got a plus or minus of 15%, you could read as on any given test, you could read as low as 85 or as high as 115. And, and that's just the error built into the, the testing methodology. And if someone is experiencing what, what we would generally uh, assume to be pretty good blood glucose response, like they're they're high at that two-hour mark is at or below that 115 nanograms per deciliter. But they're still having some like hunger issues. They're still having some uh, inability to go, say, like four, five, six hours between meals and not experience cognitive or physical performance decline. Then that might be where we get in and start tinkering and tightening that stuff up. Maybe we, we change either the amount or the type of carbohydrate that they're taking in replacing that with either protein or fat. And there's kind of uh, compelling reasons to do one versus the other. But that would be a pretty good example of, of when and how we might get in and, and tweak that stuff for a, a specific situation where even though um, these levels are arguably quite a bit more restrictive than what we would see, say, with like a American Dietetics Association guidelines, it, it's uh, still in that therapeutic range for the vast majority of people. But for a lot of people, it's still not quite tight enough. If you're like me, you picked up on what Rob said about sometimes he'll feed people more fat. Other times he'll feed them more protein based on the situation. Let's dive into this. It's actually something Rob has been experimenting with, but there is some interesting rationale that he has around generally feeding people more protein. That's one that I'm honestly still playing with. And, and some of that is, uh, you know, we have some of these genetic polymorphisms where some people uh, have some SNPs, uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms, in which they may not do that well at a higher fat intake, but yet they also, due to a variety of, of reasons ranging from gut health to potentially uh, mitochondrial disruption that, that can be caused from iron overload, antibiotic intake, obesity. I mean, there's just a bunch of different vectors that can alter our, our mitochondrial health. In that situation, we might make an argument that going a higher protein intake uh, the body could rely on gluconeogenesis for providing a slow trickle of glucose for for the body and in particular the brain. Um, we're kind of shuttling um, some of these uh, uh, substrates, specifically protein, into some metabolic pathways that are different than what we would go down with that beta oxidation of fats. And, and so those are some of the considerations around you know, we might find better satiety with a higher protein intake versus a, a higher fat intake. Um, folks who have a significant amount of body fat to lose, uh, you know, within the kind of ketogenic diet world, there, there are a couple of different camps. There are some folks that suggest that you need to use fat as a lever and you still need a caloric deficit. And then there are some people who say you can eat fat recklessly and, and uh, you know, all that matters is controlling insulin. And what, my experience has been that uh, although um, low-carb diets can be very forgiving with regards to uh, total caloric load, it seems harder to overeat on them. People can and still do overeat. And someone who is carrying significant amounts of excess body fat Really, what we want to do is encourage their body to offload that that fat reserve and uh, uh, something that's almost akin to a protein sparing modified fast where it would be very high protein, 
some uh, moderate activity, mainly uh, uh, weightlifting, resistance training, and a lot of fibrous twiggy greens and very low carb and low uh, fat is arguably one of the most effective, at least short-term interventions that we could do to get some really rapid uh, fat loss, but also some some resolution of, say, like insulin resistance and metabolic health. It, it, and, and people do drop into a ketogenic state when doing something like a protein-sparing modified fast, again, particularly if they have significant amounts of body fat to lose. So it, it becomes a little bit of a, you know, like dropping a marble, marble down a sorting pathway and it's kind of a yes, no, uh, uh, you know, binary thing, you know, is this working for you? Yes or no. If yes, then we keep doing this. If no, then we, we have a couple of logic, you know, decisions we need to make and test that and see what happens. And since we're touching on macronutrients and low carb, let's explore Rob's perspective on keto and carbs because I get asked all the time. Yeah. You know, someone who is showing all the classic signs and symptoms of metabolic syndrome, Elevated blood pressure, dyslipidemia, uh, uh, abdominal adiposity, um, elevated blood glucose, elevated triglycerides, like a, a smartly formulated ketogenic diet with an eye towards um, adequate protein so that we, we get a highly satiating uh, kind of effect on that side. And then um, enough of a caloric deficit so that we get some some good frisky weight loss like those people do really really well with that where it starts getting murky as to whether or not a ketogenic diet would be beneficial at all and potentially even injurious anyone that's doing a glycolytic based activity soccer boxing judo wrestling crossfit um, you know, just even looking at anecdote, you know, we have anecdote of people doing really well with low carb or cyclic low carb in strength athletics, shot putting, weightlifting. We have, uh, and, and you know, it, it tends to extend up to about maybe like 10 to 15 seconds in duration with most of the activity. And then we are definitely seeing a number of folks who seem to uh, benefit uh, to your point, you know, maybe with a, a train train low race high kind of kind of approach where they're eating low carb and their their various training or aerobic base building blocks and then putting in targeted carbs so that they've got that that lower gear for uh, sprints and stuff like that so we see some success with again anecdotally with uh, ketogenic or low carb diets at the very short time indexing side of things and at the very long time index side of things but this stuff where it's highly intense repetitious uh, last somewhere between, you know, high intensity around two to five minutes. It's, it's kind of a no man's land. Like you see a few people who report that they do well with it, but not a ton. And if we, if we overlay what we know about the metabolic pathways with that, you know, those strength athletes are mainly relying on the ATP creatine phosphate pathway and also the aerobic pathway for recovery. The, uh, long duration endurance athletes are mainly relying on the the aerobic pathway. They occasionally make some inroads into the glycolytic pathway and and a little bit of ATP creatine phosphate, but not a ton of that. And uh, so, you know, the the folks that definitely seem to benefit from a ketogenic diet, even if if from a transitory uh, exposure, are these folks that are significantly overweight, insulin resistant, and and then they do. The diet in a way that that actually makes sense. So no CrossFit folks, keto is not ideal for all of you. 
But here is how Rob manages to be low carb with Brazilian jiu-jitsu training, which is quite intense. I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu four or five days a week and lift weights a little bit. And I, I've found that I've kind of adapted to kind of a lower carb intake, uh, you know, 100, 150 grams a day, depending on the, the training volume. But in checking my blood glucose and blood ketone levels, I kind of cycle in and out of ketosis. But if I, if I drop down to that, that kind of classic like 30 to 50 grams of uh, carbs a day, um, the wheels just fall off the wagon for me. Like I, if I'm just lifting weights and by just it's kind of in quotations, but you know, that relative to, um, doing, you know, hour and a half to two hour jujitsu sessions, four to five days a week. Like there's just no comparing the two with regards to metabolic output. And, um, if I do significant amounts of jujitsu in that really kind of classic keto, keto level um, of carbohydrate intake, I just get smashed. And um, I'm finding that a lot of folks who do use kind of a targeted ketogenic approach where they will fat adapt over the course of two to three months, then they will drop in anywhere from like 50. So they've got a background of 30 to 50 grams of carbs a day, just, just as part of their basic dietary intake. But then prior to a, a more intense glycolytic type session, they will do anywhere from like 20 to 50 grams of carbs in that, that targeted window right before the the session. And I know a fair number of people that are having some good success with that. I, I had some challenges doing that. I found that just eating a modest amount of carbohydrate more consistently seemed to work better for me. I just want to end this show with some cool observations Rob brought up about the future of nutrition. Rob is a great storyteller and wrote an article a while back called The Origin and Future of the Ketogenic Diet. It tells the story of two men separated by a hundred years who are discovering the benefits of fasting and a ketogenic diet on health. It made me see that nutrition is subject to the same cycles as news or history. So I asked Rob, what cycles is he seeing? So around 2001, 2002, there was kind of an Atkins craze and, uh, low carb and kind of Atkins was, was pretty popular, but there was nowhere near the research that we, we have now. And interestingly, like right now, there are more studies with, with the term paleo diet and kind of ketosis or low carb underway right now than I believe have been done in history. So, you know, like there's just going to be a massive amount of information that, that rolls out over the next couple of years. And, it, you know, here's something, it doesn't specifically answer your question, but this is one thing that I've, I've kind of noticed. Um, over the course of time, if somebody is is describing something that I would say that's kind of factually based with regards to nutrition, there's been a little bit of an evolution around this. And, you know, we, we could argue that the, the kind of Atkins phenomenon put the idea of carbohydrates and insulin management on the radar. Like, like he, you know, that was, and there, there have been multiple other people, but you could maybe argue that he, he kind of, uh, you know, got that stuff on the, the, the radar. And then in the early 90s, um, Barry Sears kind of took that a step further in talking about uh, macronutrient ratios and, again, talking about insulin, but a need for insulin-glucagon balance. And so then after that, if somebody didn't write a book that at least had an eye towards hormonal management, then it was like the cookie diet or the the cabbage soup diet or, you, you know, one, one of these things. Like it, it just wasn't 
super credible. You know, there, there was some, some kind of shenanigans going on with it. And then I would actually argue that, uh, the eat right for your type book, which I I think it should be filed in the, um, uh, the the fiction section, like the fact it's in nonfiction, I, I think is problematic other than the fact that he really did make some points about lectins and various food intolerances that I, I think are, are credible. The, the way that he um, claimed to be able to uh, delineate, you know, that I'm reactive to peanuts and you're reactive to almonds based off blood type just, just hasn't borne things out. But that was honestly kind of a seed crystal that set the stage then for, say, like Lauren Cordain and the general like paleo diet discussion to to make the scene. And so now we're at a spot where to be credible, you've got to talk about nutrient density, glycemic load, potentially immunogenic factors of food, you know, that some types of foods cause an immune response in different people for a variety of reasons. And then we layered in, say, like the, the understanding of the gut microbiome and maybe some individualized genetics. And we would put maybe uh, Dr. David Perlmutter and some other folks in that camp. So now we're at this spot. If you, if you write a book and it doesn't include gut health, hormonal management, sleep, circadian rhythm, uh, uh, stress, you know, if it's leaving off any of those those pillars, then it's kind of bogus. Like it's really, really missing the mark. I asked Rob one last question. What's next? He sees the gut health seed has been planted and will continue to grow. But he's also looking further down the road. Interestingly, the the machine learning stuff, I, I think, may be a really fascinating direction that things go. There may come a day where we... we um, get much more benefit from filling out a comprehensive questionnaire than what we get from doing extensive blood or lab work. And, you know, what will potentially happen over time is thousands, tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of people will have their gut microbiome, their genetics, uh, their epigenetics sequenced, cataloged, dumped into a, a uh, you know, a database. And then machine learning algorithms will then get in and correlate what they have going on under the hood with what they have going on clinically. Like, are, do you have sleep disturbances? Do you wake up in the middle of the night? Your HRV scores are this, that, and the other. And so I think at some point, you, we may actually see much, much less testing and much more um, uh, surveying of, of people. And that that's going to be the way that we're able to actually uh, dial in and, and get a sense of what's going on with folks. Because that is this really big macro picture that I, I think tells a, a story that is um, difficult or impossible to tell with this kind of reductionist approach and just looking at insulin, just looking at gut health, just looking at, at uh, you know, various hormonal markers, what have you. Those things are always valuable to some degree, but the context can easily be lost and, and it's a almost infinitely complex system. And so if you, if you could get just tons and tons of data points and then get a, a machine learning algorithm that can see uh, consistencies that we, you know, our brains just, just can't see, then there could be some really huge uh, opportunity there. If you enjoyed this episode, definitely check out robwolf.com. That's R-O-B-B wolf.com for everything Rob is doing. He has a great podcast, The Paleo Solution. He's a gifted storyteller, which shows in his informative yet entertaining blog posts. 
and he has two best-selling books, The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat, that are worth having on your shelf. You can also head over to iTunes and leave a nice review for the Beyond Macros podcast and make sure that you're subscribed. I'm going to release a few mini episodes over the month of March as I travel to do some continuing education and won't have as much time. These episodes will be highly informative and right to the point. When I get back, my goal is to get more female voices on the show. So if you have a favorite expert, coach, teacher, or author in the space who you think would be a great guest, let us know. And if you'd like to learn more about how to count your macros and get leaner and perform your best, head on over to beyondmacros.com and sign up for our free macro counting mini course. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to seeing you next week.